At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a culture filled with promises for a better life, deeper satisfaction, and greater purpose, but how do we know which is right? We invite you to join us for Smoke and Mirrors, deciphering truth in a world of truths, where we'll look to Scripture to expose the illusions of our culture, and together, hold fast to a better answer, God's. I think, therefore I am. Now, I'm not quoting Billie Eilish's latest track. These words were famously given by Rene Descartes, a 17th century French philosopher. Descartes had an interesting perspective on philosophy and life. He rejected the philosophy that came before him, and he set out in his life that he determined he wanted to know the meaning, the essence, the philosophy of life based on what he could be certain of, what Descartes called certain beliefs. And so the way Descartes approached his study of life was he decided that he was going to throw out everything that he knew about life And he was going to begin examining all the pieces and elements of how he knew things one by one to see if he could construct a philosophy of life. Unfortunately, as he did this, he came to realize that he didn't quite know what he thought he might know. And he became what many people call a a radical skeptic. How, How do I know who I am? How do I know this world is real? How do I know what truth is? How do I know any of these things? And the more he sought, the more skeptical he became until Descartes reached a kind of foundational conclusion. He realized that if he was doubting, then doubting was a form of thinking And if he was thinking, then he existed. And so he reached this foundational conclusion in his work, I think, therefore I am. This became the foundation then of Descartes' philosophy, and he began to reconstruct philosophically how he knew other things in life based on this simple truth, that thinking reveals existence. This would have a profound effect on not only his philosophy, but the philosophy of the day. Descartes would lead to a philosophical idea known as rationalism. He was really the father of it, and others began to follow in his footsteps. And rationalism was simply the idea that what we know to be true is not based on our senses, that our foundation for truth and meaning is not found in our experience but it is only found through our intellect and deduction. That is that how we make sense of the world comes through our mind. Now at this point you're like, I thought I was coming to church, not like philosophy 101. So why are we talking about this? Well, the reason I bring up Descartes and kind of his philosophical foundation is one, because he's extremely influential in the way we think about life today. Many of us simply assume that ultimately what is true is most found through rational thinking and our intellect and the mind. That is what truth is. But Descartes' discovery also forces us in some ways to ask and wrestle with the question, what is our foundational belief? What is at the bottom 
of what we believe about life and meaning. Does life, does the understanding and meaning life ultimately come from the mind, from our intellect? Is reason, thinking, rationality, understanding, knowledge, the source of ultimate meaning and purpose and human flourishing in the world? The question I want us to think about for a few minutes today is simply this. Is intellectualism the key to a life of meaning or flourishing? Last week, we kicked off a series that we're calling Smoke and Mirrors, where we're looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, the first couple chapters. And the book of Ecclesiastes is an interesting book. It's it's found in a set of books in your Old Testament that are known as wisdom literature. They're ancient Hebrew wisdom. But Ecclesiastes is an odd book when it comes to wisdom. It essentially centers around the reflections and teachings of a man that we know in the book only as the preacher. And the preacher sets out in the book on a search for meaning and purpose for his life. But in his search for meaning, he kind of sets a a thought experiment. He determines at the beginning that he's only going to look at the meaning of life from what he can observe and what his words are is life under the sun. What's observable, tangible, that he can see meaning and purpose in. Essentially, he determines he's going to remove God from the equation and look at life to then discover meaning and purpose apart from God. We call this last week, his kind of perspective in the book, a secular worldview. And secular or secularism is the idea of approaching a life with an indifference, rejection, or exclusion of God and religious belief or religious consideration. If you remember last week, we began with a famous quote from Friedrich Nietzsche, God is dead and we have killed him. That's essentially the idea underneath secularism. God is no longer needed. We've replaced him, and this is how we then consider life. And once we've removed God from the equation, we then begin to seek and look to say, well, where is the meaning of life found? And that's what essentially the preacher looks to do, to try to evaluate life and say, where is meaning and purpose and flourishing and success ultimately found for humanity apart from God? For many of us in this world, we wrestle with the same questions and reality. We are wired for meaning as creatures. We're the only animals in all the earth that are self-conscious. We're aware of ourselves, and because of that, we desire meaning, and we seek purpose and fulfillment and meaning for our lives. But the question that we all wrestle with is, where does meaning come from? And in a world that's secular, that is where God's removed from the equation, we look to all sorts of different places. And the preacher wants us to show some of those places he searched. And in that way, he becomes a helpful guide to help us evaluate and process the places we look for meaning. And so last week, we looked at the first place he begins in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is nature and naturalism. As he looks at life under the sun, he observes the reality of nature. But what he notices is its endless cycles and the lack of purpose when you look at nature only alone, caused him to draw the conclusion that life is hevel. It's meaningless. It's like smoke or wind. It's vanity. But now, after he's kind of drawn that conclusion of naturalism, he turns to a second form of meaning in the book. You actually see it arise right away in verse 12 in our passage 
in our search 12 and 13 in our passage this morning. Look at it with me. He says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, he wants you and the, the writer is using that tangible phrase to bring reference to King Solomon. This is the phrase that's used at the beginning of the book, who was the wisest king in the history of Israel. So whether these are Solomon's words or whether this is someone adopting a Solomon persona is ultimately unknown. But either way, he wants you to think about the wisest man that existed in his day. And he essentially says this, and I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. In our search for meaning, the natural place for us to look once we've observed nature and found it to potentially be meaningless is to then turn inward, to look at ourselves and say, well, what do I have in myself that could help draw meaning from? Like Descartes, we might realize, I think, therefore, I am. Maybe meaning, the foundation that I'm looking for, is found in me. And ultimately, for the preacher, maybe it's found in my mind. So he sets out to explore the mind as the center, meaning, and purpose of our lives. Right? We, we would call this intellectualism. Intellectualism is the idea that the exercise and development of the mind, the intellect, and its results is where the key to success in life and human flourishing is found. But as the preacher leans into this view of the world, it forces him to come back to a question that he wrestles with. And the question is, why does more wisdom seem to lead to more questions? You actually see him unpack this in kind of a, a framework that he uses in this book, or I mean in this, this passage. What the preacher is going to do is he's going to acknowledge his search for meaning intellectually. He's then going to draw a conclusion or a statement in regards to his search, and then he gives a saying, a proverb to kind of support his conclusion. He actually does this twice in verses 12 through 18. So you see the search come right away in verse 13. He says it, I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Now, when the preacher uses the word heart, in the Hebrew mind, the heart is the center of one's inner life. For us, we look at the heart as the center of will and emotions. But for the Hebrew, the heart also included the center of thought or the mind. So when he says, I'm searching out the heart, we could easily use that in the context of how he uses it to say, I search with my mind. He's talking about his inner thought life. And he essentially says, I sought to look at everything I could observe and understand and to find meaning in it. It was an exhaustive search that he engaged in fact, one commentator notes just the language that's used here points to the inexhaustive nature of his search. He says this, that as the lead investigator, his approach is characterized by intellectual rigor, by applying his cognitive faculty, the heart, to a methodological on investigating and comprehensive and exploring examination through skill and know-how by wisdom. I know that's a lot of fancy words. The whole point that I'm trying to say is what he's trying to communicate to you is I searched and I searched. I cataloged, I investigated, I dug, I tried to use the best of what I could to determine meaning and purpose in life. 
And yet he draws this conclusion halfway through the verse based on his search. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is hevel and a striving or a hurting after wind. He searches with his mind and he draws the same conclusion he drew earlier in the book. That if I base my life of meaning on the mind, then in the end, it's all smoke or vapor. We used this illustration last week that this repeating word is his view of life under the sun. That life is fleeting like smoke is fleeting. That's an enigma, something that can't be grasped and held onto. And as he evaluates life through his mind, he reaches the same conclusion. Life is hevel. Now, why does he draw this conclusion? Well, he gives us a saying in verse 15, a little proverb, proverb for us. Essentially, he says life is hevel because what is crooked cannot be made straight and what is lacking cannot be counted. He essentially looks at life and he says, through all the knowledge I've acquired, through all my study, through all my search, what I discovered is the problems of life could not be solved by my intellect alone. That the twists of life, the crookedness, I couldn't make them straight. I couldn't get everything aligned. I couldn't fit it into my nice, neat package. And what was lacking in life, I couldn't fill it. I couldn't figure out how to get to those answers. I could not just solve the issues of life by knowledge and wisdom. And so he says, well, then life must be meaningless. You see, what the preacher draws to this conclusion is that when we base meaning and life on our intellect, what we find is that our intellect alone cannot ultimately solve the problems of life. That life is not just solved by information. I mean, we live in the most advanced informational society in the history of the world. You have more access to information in the phone in your pocket than all of the previous generations had combined. We have infinite amounts of information. And yet in many ways, we're no closer to solving the key problems of life. I remember several years ago reading an article in Popular Mechanics, and they were detailing the revolution in storage and data. And what essentially they were arguing for in the article was how the revolution in being able to store memory in various places was going to transform humanity and technology. That what we previously had to store in all sorts of different places, we could now store in one place. Because now, right, what you could store on a computer 10 years ago, you store on a flash card that you stick in your pocket. Like, this was going to change everything. And I remember, as a young guy reading this, being like, oh, I can't, this is awesome. We're going to solve problems. And yeah, it's changed things. Technology has improved. But we're still struggling with the same stuff as a human race. I mean, it still astounds me that a small virus shows up on the scene, whatever it was, almost 20 months ago, and we have thrown everything we can at this. All our, the money we can, the research we can, the science we can, all of our information, trying to figure it out. And we're still saying, well, we don't really understand quite. 
We're still, like, all of our intellectualism, everything that we have available to us, and we still can't make what's crooked straight. We, we still find ourselves lacking. We just can't figure it out. And the preacher says, yeah, because you cannot find meaning in understanding everything in the world. That's not where meaning is found. So life must be meaningless. He actually reiterates the same idea in verse 16. He then looks inward and says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. So he's like, well, if I can't figure it out through information, then I'll try to figure it out through wisdom. And he essentially says, I'm wise. He was a king over Jerusalem. I have as much access to information and knowledge and wisdom. And not only that, I've had the opportunity to imply that in incredible ways by leading a nation, by doing these sorts of things. You and I know that the best teachers to learn from are teachers that are both book smart and street smart. People who have information and have learned how to apply that information in life, that have experience. If you learn from someone that just has information but no experience, that can be helpful in part, but not helpful in full. And if you learn from someone who just has experience but has no information behind it, that becomes insufficient as well. But when someone has the books, the information, and the knowledge, and the experience, those are the best teachers. And essentially what he's saying is, I'm the best teacher. I've had the wisdom and the knowledge, and I've sought to apply that in discovering what's wise, what's good, what's folly, and what is foolishness. Right? This, this, this guy's a lifelong learner. And yet again, the conclusion he draws in 17 is, I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind. That trying to discover what's wise and what's foolish, it's meaningless. It's trying to grab something that you can't grab. Why? Well, he says in 18, for in much wisdom is much vexation or frustration. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Essentially, he says, the wiser you become, just the more frustrated you get. Because you fail to live out that wisdom. <laughs> You see the mistakes that you made in life. You look at the world and see the problems, and maybe you have better understanding, but it doesn't help you figure everything out. You're still left frustrated. And not only that, it leads to sorrow and a sadness over the brokenness of life. You and I know, those of you that are older and more mature than I am in this room, and, and we're thankful for you. We continue... And I'll just, on a side note, we, we have to be a church that continues to honor those that have walked the path before us. Our culture values youth. We should value wisdom. But those that of you that have walked that path and are wise, you know that the more you know throughout life that you've learned, you've only realized how much you actually don't know. Like, isn't that frustrating at some point? Wait, the more I learn, the more I learn what I don't? Like, and he essentially... If that's all there is, if knowledge and wisdom is where we search for meaning, then at some point we draw a similar conclusion to the man and say, well, then life must be meaningless. What's the point? Tim Keller in his book, Making Sense of God, tells the story of a young man that he met in New York who was devoted to the philosophy of Descartes. He writes this in one chapter. He says, he started, this man, with the only certainty, namely, that he existed and could think. 
And from there, he tried to proceed by piecing together a view of life that was in every part absolutely rational and proven. To his dismay, he discovered that he could get almost nowhere. He couldn't prove that the universe wasn't an optical illusion, a trick played on him by some demon. He couldn't prove by what standard something was proven. He fell into a kind of intense, radical agnosticism, unable to know that anything existed outside of his own self and mind. When you put intellect at the center, at some point, you recognize that you can't know everything. Now, hear me in this. I'm I'm not critiquing learning and knowledge. That's an important aspect of life. What I'm critiquing and what the preacher points to is that when you make wisdom and knowledge the meaning or the core of life, because when you do that, what you recognize is that you will never be able to possess all knowledge or all wisdom. That no matter how much you learn, there is one more bit of information, one more piece, one more thing that you haven't known or experienced. You can live as wisely as you can and still not solve the challenges of life when you live under the sun. Life is meaningless. I mean, this is what a number of philosophers discovered in the, in the early and mid-20th century. Out of Descartes' reality of rationalism and this belief post-enlightenment that we could ultimately find meaning and truth through our minds and rationalism, we eventually realized as a culture that that wasn't actually true. And so what began to rise up in the early 20th and mid-20th century was the idea of postmodernism. And postmodernism essentially said, we can't rationally know everything. And if that's the case, then maybe life is all relative. Maybe there is no absolute truth. Maybe we just can't know. And if that's the case, well, what, why even try to know? But then we rejected postmodernism, and so now as a culture, we're in like a, what people call a post-postmodernism, which is this weird hybrid where we're like, well, we can know some things, but we can't know all things, and there is truth, but there's not absolute truth, and I don't know. And so what we become is we become increasingly agnostic. We become like the preacher saying, we can't know. So why try? What's the point? Life is hevel. And so what are we to do? Well, I think the preacher actually gives us a glimpse later in the book of what we can do to deal with this issue. He cycles back to this idea a little bit later on in chapter 8. So you can turn there with me if you're in your Bible. And he kind of counts and realizes that his quest is fleeting. He says this in 816. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So again, he comes back to that conclusion. If I reason and only go with reason, life in all its ways and all its complexities is unknowable. I can't know it. Even a wise man, a truly wise man, cannot figure it out. But he draws his eyes for a moment at 17 when he says, Then I saw all the work of God. For a moment, in his search, the man puts God back into the equation. 
And it causes him to recognize that he can't know what God ultimately knows. That God is the one who actually is the place where wisdom and knowledge is found. Because the truth is, God has wisdom beyond our understanding. So though we cannot know, that doesn't mean that God doesn't know. In some ways, the move that we see in the preacher for a moment here is a similar move that we saw last week. In naturalism, when we observe all the realities of matter and the universe, we come to the point where we say nothing makes sense. It just feels like endless cycles and it's going nowhere. But once you step back from life under the sun and you elevate your eyes and you recognize that God is the creator, suddenly things like meaning, purpose, potential come into play. It's the same with wisdom and knowledge. With no God in the equation, those things feel fleeting and meaningless. They can't provide the answers we're looking for. But once you add God back into the equation, you begin to realize that there is someone who has answers, who created all that there is and therefore knows all things and has set wisdom in the world that can be found. And this is what the biblical authors point us to time and time again, that God is the source of wisdom and knowledge that he knows everything, and that his ways are unknowable in some ways to us, but he knows. That's why the prophet Isaiah would write and say, remember this and stand firm. Recall to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And they essentially says, God made everything. God is the one. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows all. And God is wise. For Isaiah would later write, his thoughts are not our thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. First John, would, or John in his letter would sum it up this way, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. What scripture points us to time and time again is that God is all-knowing. That that's the truth. That in our search for wisdom and knowledge, there is someone who has infinite wisdom and infinite knowledge. That it is God. That those things cannot be found in and of ourselves, but only when we look to God. That's why Paul, in his letter to the Romans, which is one of the densest places of scripture in unpacking the truth of the gospel and Jesus, spends 11 chapters just writing dense theology about God, how he works, about his righteousness and salvation. And when he gets to this long place of dense theological writing, he steps back for a moment, and in Romans 11.33, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Paul spent exhaustive time searching the truth of God's revelation, and at some point he steps back and says, I can't. God's ways are inexhaustible. 
A man during the Reformation named Thomas Aquinas sought to do the similar thing as, as Paul. He wrote a famous work called the Summa Theologica. And Aquinas' goal was that he was going to try to summarize everything that could be known about God in one work. And he wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And at the end of his life, he said, I can't write anymore. God cannot be summarized in one work. See, the truth that we remind ourselves from Scripture is that God's ways, his knowledge and wisdom is unsearchable. It cannot be contained in and with us. It's why Paul then draws the conclusion, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Because when we recognize that God is all-knowing, we recognize that the path to meaning and success and purpose and human flourishing are ultimately found in him and his ways, not in ourselves and our own rationality. It draws us to look to him. And when we recognize this, this is simultaneously the most freeing and most challenging realization. It's freeing to recognize that God is all-knowing and all-wise because it removes the burden from us. We don't have to know it all. We don't have to understand it all. We don't have to be it all. Infinite knowledge is not a burden that you were meant to carry. It's not. It's why we're exhausted by the amount of information that we're inundated with on a daily basis. How many of you just feel sometimes like, I just want to smash this phone because I can't take one more bit of news or one more bit of information or one more tweet? Like, I'm just tired. Because we weren't meant to live in a way where we're constantly receiving information and knowledge and understanding. We're not meant to be the professors of infinite knowledge. And the more we do, the more exhausted we become. There's a reason so many philosophers in history went nuts. <laughs> and when we recognize, oh, I don't have to be the source of all knowledge. I don't have to try to understand everything. Man, that is a freeing realization but it's also challenging, extremely challenging. Why? Because here's the truth we don't want to recognize often. We like intellectualism and rationality because intellectualism and rationality keeps us at the center of the universe. This is why I think Descartes' conclusion is so appealing. If I think, therefore I am. If my only justification for understanding my own existence is me, my own self-awareness, my own thought, if I'm at the foundation, if I'm at the center, if I'm the point, well, then I get to determine wisdom. I get to determine what's true. I get to determine what's right and wrong and what's moral. And I don't need God, and that's a place we like to live. It is. I mean, there's a reason the first temptation in the Bible is saying, if you eat this apple, you will become like God, knowing good and evil. You don't need God to determine those things. You can know. You can rationalize. You can understand. You can be the center. 
And we love intellectualism and rationalism because it's comfortable. It's easy. We've even built whole theological understandings in the church based on these realities because anything that's outside of our rationalization, we feel uncomfortable with. So we read the Bible based on deduction, not based on the Spirit. And it's not that rationalism is bad, but it's not meant to be God. God is meant to be the center. And it's only when we recognize that that we begin to see and experience meaning. Rationalism and intellectualism cannot solve our ultimate problems. At the end of his book, um, Making Sense of God, Tim Keller kind of summarizes uh, the story of a man named Langdon Gilkey. And Langdon Guilty wrote a book uh, called The Shantung Compound, where he recounted his time in an, intern cam- an internment camp um, under the Japanese during World War II. Langdon Gilkey was, uh, grew up, his father was a professor at the University of Chicago. He was extremely well-educated. Gilkey ultimately, after graduating high school, would go to Harvard, and he would graduate magna cum laude from Harvard with a degree in philosophy. After graduating, Gilkey would make his way to China where he would teach English at a university there. And in uh, 1940, I think it was, if I remember correctly, um, when the Japanese came and invaded the province that he was in, Gilkey, along with many others, were taken into an internment camp under the rule of the Japanese. Keller notes that in entering into the camp, Gilkey held fast to his secular and humanist worldview. One of his core beliefs that was humanity was good and rational, and that rationality and human goodness could overcome the problems of life, that we didn't really need God or religion. And at first, when he entered into the camp, he was confirmed in this worldview as he saw the initial prisoners work together for their own survival, helping each other, figuring things out together. But over time, Gilkey noticed the moral decline that began to set in and the camp and the selfishness that began to be involved in the life of the prisoners. And one day he had a moment where uh, it threw his whole worldview into a tailspin. And Keller kind of recounts in the book how um, Gilkey was put in charge. He was part of a committee that was in charge of housing and helping deal with the reality of the housing of the prisoners. And and one day he realized that him and several others were in a small room. There was 11 of them that were packed in and lived in this small room. And that um, at another part in the camp, there was a room of exact same size where only nine guys were living. And so Gilkey set out to say, well, like, we need to bring balance. We're crowded. They have a little more space. So he came to the group of men and essentially said, we want to take one of the guys living here and move him into the place where you are. So you have 10 and we have 10. This is going to be better for all of us. That way we're not overcrowded. It's balanced. It's easy. And he was immediately rebuffed. Like, no, we're not doing that. We're totally fine with nine guys in this room. And so Gilkey set out and tells the story how he sought to rationally try to help them understand why it was better for them to have 10 guys in this room and 10 guys in that room. But again, he was rebuffed, literally the point where they said, if you come back, it's not going to go well for you. And Gilkey recounts in his book how this threw him into a state of confusion. How could rationality and understanding not lead these men to make the right moral choice that was ultimately better for everyone in the situation? 
At one point, he recounts in the book the reality that reason never produced the moral goodness that he knew was needed. And so he says, it was a rare person indeed in our camp whose mind could rise beyond that involvement of the self in crucial issues to view them dispassionately. Rational behavior in communal action is primarily amoral and not an intellectual achievement, possible only to a person morally capable of self-sacrifice. In a real sense, I came to believe moral selflessness is a prerequisite for the life of reason, not its consequence, as so many philosophers condemn. You see, the issue of our lives is that we're broken in our hearts because of sin. And no amount of rationalization, of intellectualism, of more knowledge or more wisdom can overcome that reality. The life of the mind does not produce the heart of goodness naturally is essentially what Gilkey points us towards. And so how? How do we begin to live a life of flourishing? Well, the good news is that God has given us a different and better wisdom than just the life of our mind. That true goodness and flourishing comes in recognizing, one, that he is all-knowing, and two, that he has made his wisdom available in Jesus Christ. But the problem is, this is foolishness in the world. The Apostle Paul actually says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Essentially, he's saying, have we not seen yet that we don't have the answers? Like, we keep looking and looking, and we still can't find the answers we're looking for. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than See, what Scripture calls us back to time and again is that ultimately wisdom is found in Jesus Christ, that he reveals the all-knowing, all-wise God, and that when we put our faith in him, we come to learn from him the life of meaning and purpose and flourishing, that we don't have to have all the answers, but we can trust the one who does, and we can learn to live the life he calls us to to remove ourselves from the center and to put God at the center. And when we do that, that's where purpose and meaning and flourishing are found. Gilkey draws this same conclusion in his book. Towards the end, he says, human beings need God because their precarious and contingent lives can find final significance only in his almighty and eternal purposes and because their fragmentary selves must find their ultimate center only in his transcendent love. You see, the recognition that God is all-knowing is a call to surrender to him. It's to recognize that your meaning and purpose is found in who he is and his love towards you that's best seen in Jesus Christ. And that when you put your faith in him, you begin to learn his wisdom, which is foolishness to the world. It's foolishness. It's foolishness that God would send his own son to die 
What kind of almighty sovereign power does that? It's foolishness to think that human flourishing ultimately comes when we sacrifice ourselves, when we love in a way that give up our rights to benefit those around us. It's foolishness to the world, but it's the wisdom of God. And it's an invitation to say life is found and wisdom is found when you make God the center, not yourself. It's not I think, therefore I am. It's I was created, therefore I am. I was loved, therefore I am. I was saved by a God who would give up his son, therefore I am. I'm redeemed by a God who loves me, therefore I am. And I'm headed somewhere to a new creation of goodness and meaning and purpose and eternal human flourishing in the glory of God, therefore I am. Put God back at the center and then you'll find true wisdom. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I recognize in this moment, even just in responding to your word, how easy it is for me to want to continue time and time again to put myself back at the center of my own life. Sometimes it's much more comfortable to live in a place where I delude myself to think that I actually have the answers apart from you. but I thank you for the truth of your word and books like Ecclesiastes that expose that when I base my life on me, my intellect, my rationality, that life suddenly becomes meaningless. And I pray, God, that it would cause all of us who all struggle with that reality to lift our eyes from this earth and look towards you, to put you back in the equation to recognize that the center of knowledge and wisdom is not us, but it's you. Draw our eyes and attention to the truth of Jesus Christ who reveals your wisdom most fully. Help us reject the foolishness of the world, which draws us to trying to find meaning in endless patterns. Help us instead to begin to see the truth and revelation of Christ, that he is the answer, he is the hope, He's our Savior, our Lord, our teacher. Help us to trust more deeply in him. Help us to keep him center first and foremost in our minds and our community. Work to put our hope and trust more deeply in him. God, I pray even now as we prepare to just respond to this word by celebrating your wisdom and your majesty and your power in creation, I pray that you would use this time by your spirit to draw our minds to Christ, to who he is and what he's done, and to center our lives back on you. So move now, I pray. Work, Holy Spirit, in each life in this room and each life watching online. We invite you to do your work, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect 
to introduce yourself today.